1: We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
0: You heard her. Go subscribe.
1: Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, And what fuels them to keep creating? It all starts by asking one simple question. Where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin.
2: Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to Uncorking a Story, a live event here from Serendipity Labs on Canal Street, Stanford, Connecticut. I'm your host, Mike Carlin. Today, I'm pleased to introduce you to Tom Suvansri, Tom graduated from Penn State University with an MBA in finance after earning his BA in biology from the College of New Jersey. Prior to starting his firm, Perennial Pride, Tom spent 15 years in the pharmaceuticals industry. So I guess he was a drug dealer. (laughs) He joins me today to talk about his book, Wealth Beyond the Numbers, A Simple But Powerful Financial Guide and Life Plan for Living Your Best Life. I just put a different word in the title, but you get it. Uh, Welcome to Uncorking a Story, Tom. Mike, I
3: appreciate you ad-libbing a new, new title for me.
2: Well, you know, I, I like to ad-lib from time to time. Um, I am taking an improv class. Uh, but uh, to begin, Tom, I have to ask, this is a question I ask all of my authors when uh, they join me on Uncorking Story. Where does your story as an author begin?
3: So this, this goes back to when I uh, graduated from business school and was just about to go start my, my new job. I was excited. Walked away with a bunch of debt, started my new career. And as a a good steward of my wealth, I went to go check my credit report. And I was examining, nothing looked unusual, and then I got a little further and recognized there was a whole bunch of debt on there that I didn't recognize. And I said, oh, well, it must be identity theft. It's commonly happening. Researched it a lot more and came to realize It was actually due to someone I knew very, very well. It was actually my mother. And she had taken out tens and tens and tens of thousands of dollars in my name and didn't tell me. And it was just a shock, you know, anger, all those emotions you can imagine. And uh, after I got myself settled, I figured out what we could do about it, but it helped me unravel their lives, my parents' lives, coming over from Thailand as uh, immigrants. My father was a, a doctor and seemingly had a very successful life. Um, but beneath the surface was chaos. Chaos. Chaos.
2: So tell me, what, what's, what went through your mind when you're looking at that credit report? First of all, what prompted you to actually pull a credit report on yourself? That seems like something that not everybody does.
3: I, I just, uh, being in finance, World, I I'd heard about identity theft, and I just was being proactive, taking a look at things, and it just one of those things I thought before I went overseas I would do, and thought it was a responsible thing to do as an adult now.
2: <laughs> That's right, adults. Uh, do me a favor, Tom, pull that microphone a little bit closer to you so we don't lose your your audio here on the recording. Um, all right, so what did you do? What what did you do next? I mean, you haven't written the book yet, obviously, but what what? Well, actually, let me let me take a step back. You grew up in what seemed to be a very sort of middle upper middle class, comfortable household. Uh, your parents paid for your college education. You didn't think that anything was wrong with them financially at the time. What What was the reality,
3: though? So the reality was that um, because they didn't really understand finances at all, it left this up to my mother to figure out, and it was the last person to leave it to, <laughs> and. She did the best she could, and as I reflect now as I've gotten older, she did the best she could in the world of chaos because my father was the one of the most generous men in the world, except for himself and to his family. And all the money was flying out the door to support every other family coming over from Thailand. And so they really didn't account for anything for themselves, and they never saved for retirement they didn't pay taxes for their, uh, for their practice. My dad had a family practice. So just like the typical problem, more money was going out than coming in, and it was just spiraling. So they just lived on debt forever, and it ruined their lives, their family, their, their, their relationship, and they eventually went bankrupt. So, you know, could be tens of millions of dollars going through their lives basically went out the door.
2: So tell me about the genesis behind this book then. The book, of course, is Wealth Beyond the Numbers, A Simple But Powerful Financial and Life Plan for Living Your Best Life. What inspired you to actually put pen to paper or actually finger to keyboard probably and,
3: uh, and start this? So because of that episode, it really pressed upon me that I need to really watch my money. It really hit me hard. And I said, I can't have that happen to me. So it, I, it just became almost an obsession Uh, And and sometimes obsessions can be bad, and, you know, I just kept on working and working harder and doing what, you you know, the society tells us to do around going forward and getting raises and promotions and chasing. And I I realized I was chasing money, and I was living a corporate life that I didn't really love. I was just doing it because I was supposed to do it, and it did provide me financially. But I started to realize that even when I started building more wealth, it wasn't giving me any more satisfaction. It wasn't giving me fulfillment. And I just started realizing that something had to change, right? Even after I made the quote-unquote money, I didn't feel any better. I didn't feel anything different. And I said, I'm chasing the wrong thing. And I started realizing that I need to figure out things better because I didn't have a great relationship with my wife. I I, I didn't have great health. I didn't have other things in my life that actually do matter. And so I started examining that throughout the course of my journey and thinking about what is it that like I want to make out of my life? And I started just sort of thinking through that. And that's what led me down the journey of uh, exploring just even my personal values and what I want to impact in this world. And that's why I shift gears and moved away from corporate America to do something that I actually love today. And it's inspiring because frankly, a lot of ways I, I look for People who are my parents when they were growing up.
2: So, I want to dig into like, what your definition of wealth is and, and really dig into the title behind the book. But before I do, talk to me a little bit about that transition you made from corporate America to doing something different and how you actually you know, made that leap. You, 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 that's taking a big risk. Obviously, you've got a, a young family. Um, tell me about sort of that part of your journey.
3: Yeah. And being someone who's relatively conservative in nature in a lot of ways, and I, I do a lot of research, I'm very detailed, it, it took a while because it was a scary area to go out on your own. And so I did that while I was working at my corporate job, right? Just like a lot of people talk about side hustles. And I started this as a side business to see, was it a good fit? Is this what I was supposed to be doing? And so it took a couple of years of bad failures, (laughs) and almost quitting to come to realization. I remember sitting with my wife and I said, what the hell am I doing here?
2: So what was the this? That was the side hustle. Explain that to me a little bit.
3: Yeah. So this was the, the, the financial practice. And I had sort of developed a lot of unique sort of expertise in doing it for my family. And so I had built up a lot of wealth and and I said, could, the, could I use this knowledge and experience and help other families? So I started doing that, and on the side, as I was still working my corporate job, to see if, basically trying on a coat, to see if it fit me. And as I got more experience and started helping people that I didn't even know, they were strangers. Most people I was helping were people I knew. When I first helped my first stranger, I said, that was it. That was what I'm supposed to be doing, helping people build the life lives they wanted and used the financial tools to do it and i just it just kept on steamrolling after that and it allowed me to build the wealth to support my family and have the courage to leave the job Um, it took five years to do that and you know for a lot of people i I talked to they could never fathom doing it but it doesn't mean you have to do it in a year can take your time and do it and I took a very measured approach because I'm conservative I wanted to make sure my family was protected and we had enough income coming in even if I made zero dollars and that's what I did and so now I can just do it freely with every ounce of my fiber to do it right
2: so in some some ways it feels like this isn't a, a job for you it's not even a career it's kind of like a vocation like that's the word that's coming to my mind it's it's your vocation to help people
3: it is, and it took a while to sort of come to grips with that, and I, I owe this. I, I give complete props to uh, Tammy and Brandon. She, she created this blueprint uh, process that I went through, and it was the first time I ever really reflected on who I was and what I truly valued as a person to really help me understand what I'm supposed to be doing on this earth. And it was the first time in my life in my 40s, you know, been on this earth for 40-plus years, kind of finally realizing that I had a purpose on this earth and is to help people make the biggest impact that they wanted to in their lives. And that was my job.
2: I've heard it said that the, um, the number one predictor of happiness isn't necessarily how much money you have, um, but it's, it's feeling that you have a purpose in life. Um, and I guess that's kind of the, the, the genesis of the, the purpose-driven life. Um, but it feels like you found that purpose for yourself.
3: I did. And, you know, as I reflect on it, you know, when I think of the, the purpose and, you know, you're in the corporate world and you kind of lose sight of it, um, that it, and then it starts losing meaning. And cause it's someone else's purpose. But, you know, when I first finally came to grips with it myself, and I said, this is what I've been looking for the whole, my whole life. And it just, you knew it. I knew it when I first saw it. And I said, this is what I'm supposed to do in terms of service. And it, it just never really thought of it because I was always looking externally for affirmations of things. Yeah. It was the first time I actually said, what do you actually feel inside? And it was the first time. It, it was quite amazing. And I, I look at those things these days and life can be very stressful. And we have so many external pressures of what life is. I'm thinking at my son going to college and trying to think through, is this even right for him? And he's feeling it. And I said, you gotta look inside. What is right for you? And this is really such a challenging thing, but I'm just grateful I found it.
2: How did the relationship you had with your wife change after you wound up leaving corporate America and started doing this full-time?
3: You know, she, she probably believed in me before I did. She saw it. And she used to say to me, why are you still hanging on here, right? You're supposed to be doing something else. And so it's changed quite a bit because I think she recognized too, now she's exploring other things. She's like, What else can I be doing in life? And I said, Man, this is just the just a such a sweet byproduct of this. And something that I, you know, deep down I, I hope my kids are paying attention. Because all I want for them is to find it. And so I can say that I found it and you can too.
2: How important was it for you? to have her support to know that she was in your corner
3: it was just about um the only thing right because i think that was always my fear i mean everything i'm doing is for them and if i failed does it reflect on them and and so when she gave that stamp of approval it was go time and i it helped me believe in myself and what we're doing here so it was it was just about everything
2: so now I know the, the back story to the book, kind of why you wrote it. Let's, let's kind of dig into the book itself a little bit more. It's called Wealth Beyond the Numbers. What does that mean,
3: Wealth Beyond the Numbers? Well, when I think about wealth, and obviously everything's about, everyone would equate it to money, but, you know, I, I kind of think of it as like an abundance of anything in your life, whether it's uh, relationships with your friends or family, your spirituality, um, 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 your health. Like you have more than you'd ever want in life in in, in the area, and that's tough these days, especially in this busy world, right? Um, To be able to have that level of balance, so I'm striving for it today. Would I say I've gotten 100%? No, I'm. i hopefully have another 50 plus years to live to get there. But that to me is my part of my drive is to get even better and stronger and and more abundant and wealthy in all those areas
2: well i mean we live in a very like wealth obsessed area of the country i mean fairfield county is i think it's fair to say it's wealth obsessed Um, but i don't think people think about wealth the same way as you do because i think most people do think about wealth as hey what's in my retirement account my rainy day fund my checking account or whatever they're not thinking about it in a more holistic Fashion is that part of your you know your practice when you're working with clients to kind of bring them into a a broader definition of wealth
3: Yeah, i like to to bring that because I think most people you know They I think when they really step back from it, you know that there is some amount of money that's going to serve their life And sometimes I have to ask them is it what what part of your life now is not working? Right not so much what your investments are not working Like what aspects of your life maybe you want to improve? Because I truly believe the money is what's there to help support it. But you got to know that first part first. What is it you want out of life, which is the harder question, right? And we don't always ask ourselves that. And you know, I do pressure people with that because people often ask me, where should I invest? I said, for for what purpose? What do you want to do with this? How is this going to change your life? you got to understand that. So I raise that in the context of talking about investments and savings and protection because it's just the tool to get you there. It's not the tool. That is not what we're trying to do here. We're trying to get the life that you want. So I try to definitely connect it to more, more with my clients. Mm-hmm. So uh, writing this book,
2: walk me through what, what was your writing process like? Um, were, you, were you a big reader as a kid? Hated it. I hated it, which is very odd for me to hear an author say,
3: yeah that they hated I hated it. it, I hated it, and I see it like it's i it was my worst class I was great in math and science, I could not pass English, I hated it, and i didn't like to write um you can imagine s a t world like I was high on one side low on the other it's just i just didn't it never got never stuck with me um so uh it was very odd it was a very um Surreal sort of experience. So like, I, now I journal more now because I do find it does allow me to release things in my head. And I do that now to help sort of free up my mind because I'll be thinking about it all night. So I do do that, and that's how a little bit started. Yeah. It's just starting thinking about what if I left this earth tomorrow, and I truly, you know, I say these things and I, I truly mean them. there's this... this uh for phrase momento, momento more which is you know, remember you must die and i know i'm going to die um and it could be tomorrow so what are some things i want to get down on paper and this is for my kids when i started doing this what are the things i want them to know about me about things i've learned and i just started jotting them down right night after night and i'm looking at this thing and i was like wow and i shared it with someone and someone said you should put a book together around this and then it just kind of rolled from there. And it just, it was a very, it was therapeutic in some respects because I knew that at least it was down on paper. Is that, I was joking around like getting the recipes from my mom's head, right? These are things that are sitting there for generations. I said, I need them to have this for future generations for my grandkids or grand, great-grandkids. I was thinking that way. And so it was a really a, a labor of love. I was, arduously trying to do it, because I feared, like, I might be running out of time. For no reason, right? I mean, who knows? But I was just, it was very uh, motivating to get me going.
2: Well, I mean, one thing about writing and being an author is that that is your legacy. I mean, there's many legacies we leave behind, but as an author, people will, your books will outlive you. Um, Which is a scary thought sometimes, thinking about some of the books I've written. But... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I don't know if I need my grandchildren reading one of them, but <laughs> my brother's laughing over here. He knows the one I'm talking about. Um, but you know, they are our legacy. You know, it is sort of how we can memorialize ourselves, and it is sort of a, a written account of you know passing our wisdom down to generations. Now, I don't think that what I write could be considered wisdom. Um, <laughs> maybe, maybe sometimes. Um, Dark, dark wisdom. Dark wisdom. So, so kind of doing this journaling, kind of capturing it, somebody, you know, then says, hey, you should really write this into a book. Did that scare you? Did the prospect of writing a book scare you?
3: Absolutely.
2: How did you overcome that that fear?
3: Well, you know, as I've gotten wisdom in older, I, I've started to realize that, you know, I've I've been more humbled in life. Right? I used to be very much a perfectionist and and um, and you know, never wanted to get help, but, you know, as I've gotten older, I've gotten smarter and recognizing that, you know, this isn't going to be a perfect thing. And sometimes done is better than perfect. And I sort of kept on moving with it and getting feedback from others and keep on building. And I was, it was just a very just normal iterative process that I just allowed myself to not worry about it and just do it. And it will get better because of the, I believed it. So it was, you know, it's just that sort of level of thinking now that I have with life. Um, It just allows me to not worry if it's going to be bad. (laughs) to be honest.
2: Were you prepared for how vulnerable you'd have to become when going through the writing process and sharing your work with, you know, with people who hopefully are going to give you some honest feedback? And then, of course, it being sold and people leaving reviews, maybe. But were you prepared for for the vulnerability
3: aspect of it? You know, because I you know, purposely was thinking about writing this for my kids, that's all I cared about. Could they understand it, frankly? That was my honest thing, and I hope people get benefit from it. I honestly didn't, I didn't think twice about it that way because I knew I, what I was writing I believed in. I thought it was helpful, and I, and I frankly think I did the best I could with it. Right. So then I said, okay, then I feel good. Okay. Right. And if people don't like it, then that's their choice.
2: Has it helped your business at all having this out there?
3: Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, it's it's interesting when I say I, I've written a book, which I still am some days amazed that I've actually written a book, they're very impressed. Like it's amazing. It's you know it's hard it is, and and I and I reflect on that and I say, Man, that was much harder than I ever imagined. And, you know, now I appreciate the people who are writing books and putting this stuff out. It is, it is quite amazing and the amount of effort that goes into it. So, um, yeah, it's, it's given me some, some level of credibility, and it shows you who I am. Because in my world of, is, as a financial advisor, um, there's a lot of them, if you didn't know. <laughs> um, and what I truly believe, though, is there are certain people in this world that are meant for me to help. I believe that. And I just have to meet them somehow. And hopefully this book helps bridge that for some people. And people have read it and, and, and have given me tremendous sort of feedback, and, and, but there are some people that it just doesn't connect, which is a good thing.
2: There, there are a lot of financial advisors in the world. And sometimes when I'm on an airplane and somebody sits next to me and they want to chat, and they ask me what I do for a living, I say, I'm a financial advisor. And that shuts them right up. <laughs> Because, because they, they don't want to be sold life insurance at 36,000 feet.
3: No, that's what you say. You say, I'm in, I am sell life insurance. Right. Nobody wants to talk to you, although I love life insurance.
2: <laughs> or term, Tom. We can get into that. <laughs> um, if, you know, if somebody picks up this book tonight, finishes it tomorrow, um, what, what are some key takeaways you hope – that they remember from their marathon reading session?
3: <laughs> Thankfully, it's a very short book. <laughs> um, I think one of the main things that I, I is going back to um, helping people reflect on are they living the life they truly want to live, right, and be real with that and say, okay, if, it, if I'm not, then what are some of the one, areas that I want to focus on and doing something? I hope that people would get that because that would be very absolutely fulfilling for me, because it took me a while to come to that. And I would love for people to just explore it, because all of our lives are imperfect, <laughs> right? And coming to reality with them and then doing something is what I would hope people would pick up. And the other part about it is is about um, personal responsibility and control. We, we live in a world today where... We can easily fall prey to other blaming people or having people uh, support us, whether, you know, we're not gonna get into it whether government supports or whatever, but the people have the ability to control the future of their lives. And they have the tools to do it if they would take those tools and use them, right? And we have some in there that are included. So those are two of the main things that I, I would hope for. And that goes with life and their finances. Because in the book, I share not only what it's helped me in my life, but then how it translates to how do you put that into a financial strategy or approach, right, that I've learned. Um, And it's just one way. So I hope they would take that away.
2: You know, it's kind of like you're you're a cross between like a financial planner, advisor, and life coach in a way. Have you ever considered yourself
3: to be be a coach? (sighs) You know, it's interesting. And I've come, I've had people ask me that question. And I I teeter on that. My, my, my sister is a, a therapist, and I, I think I, I, I loosely get free advice at uh, therapy sessions with her. And it is. I, I just feel connected that way. I think the financial tool and the strategies, that's not my life purpose. The purpose was to help people find ways to impact things for themselves and for generations. I just use the financial tools and strategies to do it. And so in some ways, I think there is some element that it's a life changing thing it's not just building money and so it's to me maybe that may have to reconsider my title
2: well i know not title but just even the way you approach your business the way you position yourself i'm thinking with my you know marketing hat on here um because i spent so many years working in marketing it's you know because there are so many financial advisors out there cost of entry is you know relatively low um, you know th- this notion of this coach slash advisor, somebody who could guide you to knowing what your purpose is, and then helping you put together the strategies and and tools to fuel that purpose, is is somewhat unique in the marketplace. And I know who to ask. I won't. For. I won't charge you for that advice, Tom. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Just put it on my tab. <laughs> um, no, it's it's fascinating and it is it, it's an, um, inspiring because I usually ask. You know, when I meet people, I ask them questions, and the first question I ask them is, what do you find joy with today? And because I'm interested, I hope they have it, and if they don't have it, I want to help them find it. And so those are the ways I think about it, because money is, again, I've been trying to... my thirst and chase of it has made me understand its place. And it wasn't in the right place before. So now I can teach people to to also think that way if they want to, and hopefully find more fulfillment in their wealth building and their life in general.
2: Is there anything else you want to share about the book before I move on to some other questions?
3: Uh Uh-oh, I'm afraid about these other questions. You should be.
2: No, you shouldn't be that afraid.
3: (laughs) Anything else you want to share about the book? (laughs) Um, The only thing I would share about the book, and I I alluded to a little bit, is that it all starts with, there's 15 steps in in there, and they're not in any specific order. There's just steps that I randomly came across that have helped me. Um, And so people can use them, and they all have practical life-related exercises, things to do, and then what does it mean from a financial perspective? And so that's how it's laid out. So it's very simple, and you can jump around. And it's an easy read because I'm not a good writer.
2: <laughs> well, 15 steps, Christina, not 12. <laughs> um, is the first step acceptance? Or
3: no. <laughs> okay, um, it, that that's the the first revision. We'll have that.
2: <laughs> well, moving on, I always like to get to know my guests a little bit more. In addition to their writing and background, I always think that pop culture is a great way to get to know. My guess. So, Tom, I'm curious when you were growing up, what were some of your favorite things to watch on TV? I
3: would say the first thing that comes to my mind is the Brady Bunch.
2: That is one of the most common answers I get. Which one of the three girls did you um, relate to the most?
3: I, I would say. Um I would say Marsha.
2: Marsha? Yeah. So you went with Marsha. I would have said Jan, but okay. Yeah. Tell me why, uh, or I should say, which one of the Brady kids? Um, just trying to have a little <laughs> fun with you, Tom. Uh, but why why Marsha? I don't You once <laughs> broke your nose with a
3: football, or? I did, almost. Almost. Did you, did you play ball in the house? <laughs> I did play, that's exactly it. (laughs) I did play ball in the house often and broke a lot of shit. (laughs) You know, mom always said, (laughs) don't play ball in the house. I see the repeated ball over and over again hitting the vase. So that's a very fond memory of mine. A lot of people tell me the Brady Bunch. I think it's because
2: it's like almost like an idyllic type situation where you have these two families. They come together. For the most part, people are happy. Conflicts are always resolved quickly. Yeah. No one knows the dad is gay. I mean, it's it's, it's like, you know, Greg and Marsha are getting together in the attic, you know? But no one knows. It's accepted. Sam the butcher is giving Alice the meat. I can keep going. I've got a captive audience here. Like, once I started, it's hard to turn off. Okay. Um, in addition to the Brady Bunch, what else may have you have watched, Tom? He's like, shit, I shouldn't have had my
3: kids listen to this tonight. Uh, um, growing up, let me see. The biggest, uh, another one was, um, you know, this is a funny one. Um, what's Happening? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. oh my so God. So good.
2: Raj, rerun, oh, Dwayne
3: Wayne. Just absolutely hilarious. Shirley? <laughs> it, it, no Roger, no rerun, no rent. No, no Roger, yeah, absolutely. I still remember walking around. No Roger, no rerun, no rent. That's no. right. That was, that was late right. later season after they moved out. Yeah. No, it was great. It was. That's a very. Okay,
2: fun I, have a, I have a what's happening trivia question for you, Tom, or anybody in our live audience, and you can shout it out if you know the answer to it. When rerun went to the cult, what was the name of the head of lettuce? that they worshipped does anyone remember Shit. he goes to like this cult it's like a kind of like a harry krishna type thing oh yeah 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 and they worship a head of lettuce no one knows the head of lettuce name was ralph ralph that's i was about to say ralph, ralph. we worship like, ralph I, yes A head of lettuce um oh my god all right so we got brady bunch what's happening give me one more show from your childhood
3: that you really enjoyed The Jeffersons. Like I just love the Jeffersons. I don't <laughs> who, know. Why? Who doesn't want to move on up? I, I want to move on up. I, I just loved him. I love his, his his walk? His walk, great. Right? He's smooth. You know, he he Who didn't like Wheezy? Like Wheezy. Like I you know, I love him joking on with Tom. I, I just I just loved it. Yeah. I love yeah. it.
2: show ahead of its time. George uh, Jefferson was also named the small businessman of the year. <laughs> And he thought it was because he was a small businessman, but it was in relation to his height. (laughs) And when he found out, he got all pissed off (laughs) at the end of the episode. I mean, you know, we did not rehearse any of this, by the way, beforehand. Um, What about music? What did you like listening to growing up, Tom? Uh,
3: You're you're not gonna believe this, but I was uh, into, for a little while, uh, like, uh, I was into heavy metal. And then somehow it flipped to uh, rap, um, sort of uh, gangster rap.
2: Gangster rap? What, what, what metal were you into? <laughs> um, By the way, with that hair, I could see you being a metal. Help. Oh,
3: my God. I had a lot of hair. Uh, it's all gone. The, I remember, um, like, Wasp.
2: Oh, yeah. Blackie Lawless. <laughs> yeah. I, I,
3: these are it's, it's so long ago.
2: They did a great cover of a Who song uh, called The Real Me. Look it up. I'll Black look it up. Wasp did a great cover of Who song called The Real Me. Um, and then, of course, if you want to meld the two together, you've got Anthrax and Public Enemy coming together. With bring the Noise." That was beautiful.
3: That was beautiful.
2: That was wonderful.
3: Def- definitely one of my favorites. Great time to be alive. And then moved over to, you know, loving things like Public Enemy and... You know, uh, Dr. Dre and Ice cube they're they the people that I follow growing up.
2: Sure, that's all good. It's all good. Biggie or no, because you were on the West Coast? No, or? no. Okay. Uh. <laughs> don't recall really any controversy here. Um, authors, were you, were you a reader or no? Could you say that you had a favorite author growing up?
3: I didn't, I really didn't. You know, I, I, I literally did not read anything. I was uh, a massive sports guy, that's all I did. Was mat, uh, uh, athletics and hanging out and getting in trouble.
2: Did I read that you played football in high school and in college? Rather,
3: I did. I played at the college in New Jersey. I was a wide receiver there. I loved it. Mm-hmm. I actually, I think, I still hold a record in New Jersey somewhere. Really, for catches or something. I don't know. Look at you. I was a little bigger back then. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Um, what about um, writing as therapy? So in what ways have you found writing to be therapeutic for you?
3: Well, I have started, and I know a lot of people do this, I, I have started journaling a little bit and just reflecting on the day uh, for sure, just to say, has it gone well, have I, I made good use of the day. Uh, so I have found that very therapeutic. Um, you know i don't do it every day i've been trying to strive to get in a better habit of that but it, i do find that very good and um you know i do typically write out my weeks just to kind of get all the big priorities down and sort of get it on paper and say this is what i want to get done this week so it's been very helpful from an organization but you know i never used to do anything like that so i found writing but but you're asking more just even just free-flowing writing just like, in general like yeah. do you
2: find writing can be a form of therapy for you
3: I think so. You know, I think when I started thinking about, um, you know, visioning five, 10 years down the road, I did start writing it out. So what would I want my life to look like? And it was really more difficult than I imagined. Um, but it was really helpful to kind of bring it to life. And, and so I think, you know, I had much stronger appreciation of what that could mean because I think there's a lot of things floating around in your head. Um, but getting it down on paper, it's just there is some, some relief to it in some respects. And especially when I wrote this book, like it, it got a lot of stuff that I wanted to get off my chest. <laughs> and so I think that's going to be something I'm going to continue to do.
2: As a sort of a first time author here, someone who maybe never have dreamed of, of writing a book. Um, did you, did anything surprise you? Or th- actually, were there any lessons you feel like you learned the hard way about the publishing process of it?
3: You know, I did have uh, um, a decent amount of help with that. So any of the pains that went with it, <laughs> I think they uh, masked it for me. <laughs> so thankfully, I had uh, people that kind of were able to help me through that that potential pain. So I didn't feel that.
2: It's interesting. A lot of people think that writing is a completely solitary process where you kind of go to a cabin in the woods and, and you you lock yourself in and you write for... 6 months a year and then it's done but there is a bit more collaboration involved and it sounds like you learned that it's it's good to have collaboration with people who have expertise in areas where you may not have expertise.
3: Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, when I first I remember the first draft and my thought it was great, but when they really picked it apart and said this just doesn't flow naturally and all the you know, this this doesn't make any sense. So it was really helpful to get another set of objective eyes to, to kind of shape it the way it was. It, it probably went through dozens of revisions right. with it. And so definitely helpful.
2: So this will be my last question until we open it up, if the audience has any questions. But um, if you could go back in time and whisper some words of advice to your younger self. I like to call this the Brad Paisley letter to me question. So if you could write your your younger self a letter uh, with some words of advice, what what kind of things would you tell your younger self
3: I would say get started faster than you ever thought you would just get moving with things because I think throughout my youth it took me so long to get something started and it just delayed everything and and so I would tell my, my younger self that don't worry about all the outcomes or what could happen If it's something that you truly want and feel good about, then just start. Start with something, even small, um, and you'll grow into it.
2: So, Tom, if people uh, listening to this podcast have uh, an interest in getting a hold of you, do you have social media or a website that you'd point them to?
3: Yeah, you can definitely go to perennialpride.com and I'm on Facebook. Uh, um, I have my my own podcast, A Perennial Pride Podcast, so you can find me there.
2: Okay. And we'll put all of that in our show notes um, so people don't have to stress and write all that down. I'd like to uh, ask anyone in our live studio audience if they have any questions for Tom. Anyone have a question for the expert? For the, ask the author. Go ahead, Jim. Jim Carlin, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs>
0: of his passing, Mm -hmm. uh, he passed away from a self-inflicted gunshot wound that uh, he, uh, you know, he committed upon himself in his office in Manhattan, I believe. So here's a guy who was worth billions of dollars and had clearly succeeded in, uh, you know, accomplishing his financial goals in life. I think he sold the snapple. Corporation. He bought it for, you know, some tens of millions of dollars, and sold it for over a billion dollars as an example. Um Now we don't know exactly what was going through his mind, but uh, you see, you see that kind of an outcome for people at the higher end of the income scale with some frighteningly increasing regularity. Um, Your book seems to talk about how fulfillment and wealth in life is not just about dollars in the bank. Any comment on that? What's going on in the larger society nowadays that might be contributing to this kind of
2: situation? Tom, did you get all that? Because it was a very long question.
3: (laughs) So I'll. I'll, I'll, To me, I think. You know, I'll reflect it from my own perspective on this, is that uh and this is more of an internal external. I think we get so much external sort of pressure for our identity and our worth. And I think that drives people in a in a way. And I think it drove my father in that way. Like he the admir- he wanted the admiration of the people around him. So what do you do? He just gave them a lot of money. He donated to their causes. And, and, and gave all his time to them, right? That was his greed. And he was looking for that sort of attention externally to basically provide him some level of fulfillment and meaning. And I think this is where I've kind of personally come to it is that we drive, derive that from the inside of what that means in our lives. Like, what, what do we what do, what do we mean to this society? And I think that's a tougher road. It took me 40-plus years to kind of come to that reality. And I think it's just the, the external pressures and this world has just driven so many people down that path. And I get it because I, I, I lived it. <laughs> Until people stop for a moment and reflect on it, which I did, this is what I, kind of I went through it you you can just continue on that train to this to that end, right, because you haven't stopped for a moment and reflected on it so it's it's something I really would press upon people to think about because um what is the journey to? <laughs> what are they trying to get to, and is it truly what you're personally about and what you want to achieve so you know, I, I don't know if I answered your question, but to me, that, that, it's just that change from external to internal, in terms of meaning and value and sort of identity.
2: Any other questions from our live studio audience? They're like, no, don't ask questions. Don't ask questions. Do you have a question?
3: So, so if you're thinking about from your, you know, reflecting on this is the assessment that it's actually there's a simple tool in here that talks about that. And, you know, if you're thinking about just life in general, right, we have obviously a bunch of areas in our lives from spirituality to health to business and finance and doing just an honest assessment. Where do you think you are on that? Right. In terms of your level of satisfaction, fulfillment right? Achievement. And be real with yourself, right? And then identify one or two areas that you want to hyper-focus on, right? And it may be your finances, but it may not be, right? Whatever it is. And then if it relates to your finances, then that's, you would kind of just go the deep one level deeper and do that same exercise, right? And then find a way to see where the areas of opportunity are, and that's why you work with yourself or other, you know, with your partner or, or advisor to, a, to kind of go down that path.
2: All right. Any final questions for Tom? With that, uh, Tom, where can people pick up the book? That's the one thing we didn't, uh, we actually didn't plug, where people can buy the book. We have to do that. I have to remember.
3: Yeah, you, could, you can definitely go on uh, perennialpride.com and, and it'll be on Amazon.
2: All right, very good. Tom, thank you for stopping by Uncorking a Story and letting me uncork yours.
3: (laughs) Thanks for having me.
1: Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts spotify or wherever you get your podcast tune in every week to hear mike carlin uncork a new story